0: Welcome to the Deeper Than Color podcast. We're uncanceling cross-racial conversations. Each episode, we bring together guests from different racial, ethnic, and religious backgrounds for real talk on issues that seldom come to light in a mixed group. Our show is co-sponsored by Invest, a leader in conversion rate optimization, and Apiary Digital, a full-service growth marketing collective.
1: In this episode of Deeper Than Color, we unlearn racial inequality at work with DEI expert, speaker, and consultant, Omar L. Harris.
0: Well, maybe we can give Omar a little bit of background on kind of how we got started and what we're about, and then we can start rolling into kind of more formal introductions and whatnot. Before Deeper Than Color, there was this group called Mixed Spaces. And then before that even, there was a group of myself and a couple of entrepreneurs who were all kind of in similar parts of our journey, who we would meet kind of once a month just to talk shop and kind of what we were going through. Mm -hmm. And um, that was happening throughout 2020. And when the George Floyd murders happened and riots and things were happening, we were Talking in that group about how should we address this as business owners and what is our role, and that kind of two two of us in the group, Tisa, who is she didn't have time to continue with the podcast, but she was both her and I were really interested, and so she brought in Chris, who she had known from a, her her previous kind of business life, cool. and I brought in Ayat because her and I had connected at a conference back in 2018. And um, we had had this kind of funny exchange where we were like sitting at lunch talking. And all of a sudden, this guy kind of barged in and like, just sort of interrupted the conversation only talked to me didn't speak with Ayot and the other woman that was there. It was like kind of a weird thing. And we didn't really talk about it at the time. But a couple years later she was writing a story about it on twitter i think it was on twitter <laughs> not with you know anybody's name or anything but just kind of like talking about her experience going in as a speaker at conferences mm. and um i kind of i reached out back to her i was like was that me in that story was that <laughs> like was i the white lady that he talked to and she was like yes uh, like i remember that moment and then we yeah. reconnected and So this whole thing kind of came together and all just been really passionate about just how we bring these conversations together, because, you know, whether we know it or not, you know, consciously or not we do talk about race in our own groups we talk mm-hmm. about ethnicity or religion in our own groups but we don't necessarily do it together or if we mm-hmm. do it's in codified language like you know chris always will kind of use the like oh you know the neighborhood is really changing kind of codified mm-hmm. language right but what we're really right. talking about is race and so we're about how do we bring this into a mixed conversation where we can just mm-hmm get different perspectives and it's been really powerful we're excited to have you on and yes, i don't know if i add, you, you want to add anything to that story no, I, I,
2: I think it's a it, it, i think you did a great job presenting the the intro definitely karen is like the connector within the group <laughs> she connects with all the different people definitely and it has like you know the large circle of knowing so many people as well as yourself Omar. obviously like you know she connected
0: us with you so i am really excited that we get to speak today with omar and he is an incredible entrepreneur executive coach author publisher speaker what else am i missing uh, several things uh, international business extraordinaire and so omar would you tell us a little bit about yourself
3: yeah, very happy to be here with you all omar l harris i uh born uh, black and muslim in pittsburgh pennsylvania and grew up basically in a working-class town and i lived all over the u.s in my you know kind of my growing up in pittsburgh charles west virginia lake charles louisiana tallahassee florida i've lived a lot a lot of places in the u.s lived overseas in uh istanbul Jakarta, Indonesia, I spent a lot of time in Sao Paulo, Brazil, spent over 20 years working in the global pharmaceutical industry for companies like Pfizer, Sharing Plough, Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, and Allergan in positions of increasing authority. When I left uh, pharma in 2020, I was general manager for Allergan Pharmaceuticals in Brazil. Uh, I've been doing that job for for two years. And uh, when the company was purchased by another large pharma company called AbbVie, I was given the opportunity through Severance to start my own shop and really begin to do the mission driven work that I I feel that I'm called to do. And so I was already publishing books prior to leaving corporate, um, but I wanted to build that out. And so now basically, you know, everything that I do is connected to, you know, what I see as my my overall purpose, which is to empower people to live their best lives, and so basically that comes in the form of executive coaching, training, facilitation, motivational speaking, publishing, even screenwriting, launching technology solutions, a little bit of a little bit of all of the above. Where areas where I have I have uh, skill and I have passion to contribute so uh, I'm living kind of my best life at this point and and being connected to wonderful people like yourselves and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you all this afternoon
0: amazing okay Mm -hmm. well I cannot wait to dive into our topic today which is unlearning racial inequity at work Mm -hmm. and in recent years we've seen many companies making declarations about being inclusive but few have followed through and even the ones with good intentions or who have attempted to, you know, that hasn't necessarily transformed business in a real way. And I think this is really critical now more than ever, because when we look at the latest census, the data shows that we have an increasingly diverse marketplace in the U.S. Not, and let's not even talk about, you know, globally. And this is so crucial to business success, you know, inclusion at work. Because that's the consumers you're trying to reach. And so in this episode, we're gonna we're gonna look at that in a mixed environment. And we're just so excited to have you as our guest today. I guess I'll just kind of to start us off, I would love and I I'm gonna put you on the spot. What kinds of things do you talk about with friends who are you would consider kind of part of your same group that you might not necessarily talk about with others when you're talking about your experiences at work or in business
2: Uh, i mean i think increasingly over the years i've tried to be a lot more open about talking about just like just my experiences and making sure that people are aware of some of the struggles that i've faced or just talking about things that even within our own company that are really important like when it comes to diversity and comes to inclusion so i i feel like you know over the years i've tried to really push myself to be more open but in general my personality is somebody that I'll tend to, um, and I think we experienced this maybe a couple of times, Karen. While I won't want to talk about certain things, or like you said, codified language of of a specific you know topic that might be a little bit more uncomfortable, or I already have a perceived notion of maybe what people might think I'm thinking. So maybe me more
0: about that. That's a, what do you mean? You have a perceived notion of what people might think you're be thinking? <laughs>
2: because I, you know, I'm not living in a a bubble, I know that, you know, again, like whether just being a Muslim woman in the United States, there's perceived notions of Muslims and what Muslims think and how Muslims think. And usually there's a stereotype. And I think that within that, you just have to kind of figure out how am I going to navigate and say the right thing without them being like, oh, yeah, she falls within the stereotype that I already considered.
0: Uh, Like you're trying to almost actively work to make sure that people don't think you fall in the stereotype or something? Is that?
2: Yeah, I guess, you know, or like, just make sure that I state my, because it's tricky. (laughs) Because, you know, again, like, sometimes you want to state your concept or your idea. And it might fall in line with again, what people may think, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? So it's just one of those like really tricky things where you're just like, I don't know how I feel like people might think this about me. So I just want to be a little bit more careful about what I'm going to say.
0: How does that play into, I mean, you are a successful entrepreneur who's launched not one, but two companies. And so you've had to wear all kinds of hats from, you know, managing client relationships to the technical side of conversion rate optimization to sales, to, you know, all aspects of business. I mean, how does that impact your role or how has it maybe changed over time?
2: I think within the business world, I really try to stay away from being like, just try to act as natural and normal as possible and overcompensate on like, you know, what, again, because of my hijab and because of You know, if I am in in the presence of people that might not be used to it, I really try to make them feel a lot more comfortable to begin with and then just go with you know, go along within our conversations as if, you know, business as usual. Like I just don't make a big emphasis on it just so that people can feel a little bit more comfortable and at ease. And then once they've established that trust in that relationship, you can maybe like, you know, further conversations. But again, like, you know, you know how it is in business. You try to distinguish between talking about things that are race related or political or anything of that nature.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. Mar. what what kind of things come up for you with that question, whether, you know, something in, inspired by Ayat's response mm-hmm. or just the, the prompt about, you know, what can you talk about with friends that it's hard to talk about a mixed yeah. company?
3: Well, I just saw a post today on LinkedIn about, and you'll definitely connect with this, about Muslims and Christmas. And the the tenu- if you're in America or in a predominantly Christian location and how we have to code switch around Christmas <laughs> so we don't come across as weird. And so there's a really interesting post on, on that on LinkedIn that I, that I liked this morning, but in the black community, I just had a very interesting experience last month. I was facilitating a workshop for a group of executive leaders at a large healthcare company, and it, it was the black leadership kind of consortium group, and they were going to go to a town hall, a global town hall for the first time in mass as this group of like 50 or so black people. And and we talked about that at the dinner before, which is like, how are people going to react to 50 black people sitting together in a corporate ballroom during a town hall? Like something as simple as that no one would ever think about this in any other group. But if you see 50 black people sitting together, it's a pro it's like, oh, what are they what are they doing? Is it a protest? (laughs) What's happening? (laughs) What's happening? And, and luckily, so when they came back from the town hall and we started our session, the first thing he said was that nobody made a big deal about it. I'm like, that's that's what we that's inclusion, which is, you know, it's just like any other group of people sitting together as a body, and so it, it's normalized. And when it's normalized, it's what we want. We we don't want it to be called out because it shouldn't be called out. It shouldn't be something that's weird. Right. But unfortunately, in the way things are seen today, and I remember this even when I was younger in my career, which is that. If, if it were, I remember going off site with fellow, you know, black people to have lunch versus sitting in the cafeteria together. Because we didn't want people to, you know, talk about what are we talking about. And and even if it, it wasn't, even if people weren't assuming anything, we assumed that they would assume. And so therefore we already took the action to kind of like to to not allow that whatever pre-assumption to even So it's very interesting in terms of the types of things that go through your head about even simple things like how many of us are congregating in the same space.
0: Amazing. It's so interesting to hear that because that's a lot of mental gymnastics and a lot of brilliance that is being used in a way that is just not that productive. And imagine all of the productivity companies could have. Let alone like the better for the humans and the mental health, right? But if you just look at the bottom line, having right. a truly inclusive environment, you're just getting more, uh, more brain power from people. And I will say, I don't think I've ever, as a white person, thought about any of those things in the workplace. I've never had to. I just, you know, as a, I can relate to that as a woman, I definitely have done the mental gymnastics of like, okay, I need to not, you know, appear too like I, you know, I don't know, I'm just going to say the word, you know, I don't want people to think I'm a bitch, but I don't want to be a, you know, pushover. And, you know, I mean, I can kind of understand from that standpoint. And, and for me, starting my own company, was such a relief when I was like, Oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Like that's So I could just use all my brain power to do my job. This is great. You know, but it's, I don't think that's something I don't think white people even have an awareness that that is something that other groups are, are doing. And so it's, you know, I guess my kind of, what where my brain is going is like what is there anything i can do in a mixed environment or you know in that situation where maybe there is someone who is the lone ranger right in their group what can i do to maybe try to do some of that work for them so that you don't have you know so that i you're saying like i kind of go out of my way to try to make them feel comfortable mm-hmm. but what if they what 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 if they were doing that, that for you right what what could we what can i do to make you feel comfortable instead so yeah, thank you for sharing that.
2: But um, I think the the issue is a lot of times, you know, like it's it's also being like a minority in the group when you're like the only person mm-hmm, in right. the room that looks a certain way. I mean, you know, there's not going to be a collective effort <laughs> to like make that person. No, They're going to no. have to try. You know, yeah. that's I think just the um, yeah. you know it's just the reality.
3: Now, what's funny is when you look when you go overseas as an American and that's your primary identity. So. You know, when I was overseas, it was the first time that I was considered American before my race. So they saw me as the American. He's the American. And it was like, not the black, it was American first. And so then you're in, then you're in a group of people, which is like, yeah, I'm in meetings with, you know, Australians, you know, Singaporeans, and they want to know about America. So now you become the minority there because you have to talk about them. You have to represent all of your country. And, you know, I've had to represent America during the George W. Bush years. I've had to <laughs> represent America during the Obama years. America In the trump years and so it's really interesting to see how they have to talk about your country and represent because you're the person they know you're the person sitting there so is this what we've heard about america true is it is it really like this or you know does everybody walk around you know with guns blazing is it the wild wild west people have some really crazy conceptions about about the u.s based on what they see in the news we have no idea how we're perceived and so that same kind of code switching or explanation or trying to make people comfortable You know, that you're not the angry American or you're not the, you know, this aggressive, you know, uh, competitive, overly competitive individual that we're known to be is another identity you take on when you're outside of the U.S.
0: That is so fascinating. I would also just be curious, you know, you talking about kind of your experience internationally. Are there other differences in how race is perceived or how people interact at work, as far as race is concerned, that's just really different from the U.S.
3: I, I, I never felt freer as a Black person than when I was outside of the U.S. I never had to worry about it. I never had to think about it. It was not really a uh, conception, at least in work, at least when I was between the walls of the office, when I was in Istanbul, when I was in uh, Indonesia, when I was in Latin America, it was, you know, my identity was American, th- not my racial identity. It was like I was able to I talk about it in my book. I was able to drop those bricks for, you know, the years that I've lived overseas. And then when you come back to America, you pick all that stuff right back up, which is really an interesting conundrum. But from a, from a racial identity now outside, yes, So when, when I was in Istanbul, I got stared at. Like, and not always nice stairs. So, I got stared at by people on the subway, on the escalators. People looked at me like I was an alien with two heads. When I was in Asia, you would get stopped to be in pe- random people's pictures. I don't know if they thought I was Shaquille O'Neal, who they thought I was. I'm in, I joke that I'm in like a lot of people's Facebook pictures that I'll never meet again, but they just stopped me in a mall or stop me at a restaurant and like, hey, come into our wedding photo or come into our whatever prom picture. Or what? And so they would just accost you and ask you to take pictures with them. So that happened in Japan, happened in Thailand, happened in Indonesia. So that's a weird dynamic. And in Latin America, I never experienced anything like that. But what was interesting in Latin America is it was less about racism and what I call placism, which was, you know, because of the job that I was doing, I'm in the top 1% of the country in terms of economically, and so the places that I'm going and the things that I'm doing, you typically would not see a person of color in those environments. But once they find that I'm American, oh, it's okay that I'm in that environment. If I had been a black Brazilian in that environment, then people would have had more to say. And so because I was American, that was okay versus, you know, had I been, you know, a a local.
0: Mm, Fascinating. Welcome, Chris. We're so excited to have you on the show. We've been chatting about just hey, what kinds of things do we talk about with friends about work that, you know, friends that look like us that we wouldn't talk about necessarily in mixed company and also kind of key differences between just working in the U.S. and internationally and how that has have been a factor. Welcome, welcome.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned how, in certain countries, like for example, I've definitely felt that, well, when I go to like a lot of different places internationally, I'm only seen as like a Muslim Arab, mm-hmm. never seen as an American. <laughs> like,
3: mm-hmm. So, yeah, you get the, I can you never, get the, I can that never out-
2: take the American yeah. identity.
3: <laughs> right, right. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, sorry. I, I think I'm. I think I'm I finally figured out my soft my my, my computer. I just want to, you know, I've experienced that too. It's uh, you know, and and it's interesting to hear. It's funny. I I don't think I've ever really talked about that. You know, maybe a little bit. I've talked about sort of like the experience overseas. And and my my previous marriage, I was married to a, a woman who's German, so I spent a lot of time in Germany, and so I experienced a, a lot of what you um, you know, what you talked about, Omar. I mean, there was the sort of. There is the the dual sort of reality of like I think that certainly there is an oddity to being an African American and and you know certainly in Germany and in in other parts of Western Europe where pop culture from America is really so dominant and so persistent that. You know, I remember, uh, you know, years ago, I had to have a surgical procedure in Germany. And so, you know, the the hospital, the the hospital system over there is very different than it is here. And is very equitably distributed across the the region. And so the place where I could get my first appointment for my surgery was sort of way out in the countryside in Germany. So I get there to check into the hotel. And there was this, maybe this little kid is maybe like five or six. And it was obvious that he'd never seen a black person before because he just looked at me like I was the jolly green giant. Like he literally, looked at me like, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't like racist, It wasn't like, you know, going right. to some, you know, racially intolerant part of, 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 you know, the world. And, and, you know, he just. Literally hadn't seen someone who looked like me before, mm. and then and then what was even more interesting is after we checked in, and I'm in the hospital room, and I think pretty much everybody who was on duty uh, at the moment came by and said hi. You know, like oh hi, I'm your <laughs> <laughs> so. <it> was... <laughs> my ex wife was like, they don't do this normally. No, this not <laughs> it's normal. Just because you're black, and there was a black person. <laughs> so it was it was interesting, but you know I think it was also you know, and I think a lot of people took from that, who who went and had that experience that like, hey, there's no racism in Germany. But I think that what was interesting was it was a very different experience for black people who were not African Americans but were immigrants from Africa right, or from right. you know right Caribbean islands or places like mm-hmm. that. they had a very different mm-hmm. experience And then obviously you know I think it's very been very well documented some of the the inequities that a lot of the mm-hmm. Germans of Turkish ancestry have had there and continue mm-hmm. to have there and the, and the entire history there which is sort of not as well told as the history of, of African Americans and different peoples of color here, Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, oh, they're here and all these conditions that are surrounding them are just the way they are and the way they've always been. And we don't know why. And we don't even quite a question, you know. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So in that way, I found a lot of some parallels and some similar similarities to some of the things that we see here in American culture. And it was very eye opening for me, too. So interesting to hear you share that, you know, uh, and, and I, too. I mean, it's you know, but I think that I think that sometimes that these things can almost provide a bit of a mirror Mm-hmm. into our society and some of our challenges because you, you go someplace and it's not America. Right. But ultimately the dynamics are the same, right? There are tribes of people. It's us versus mm-hmm. them. How mm-hmm. do you become part of us? You know, can you ever become part of us? Why are we separating all of those things? And then society not wanting to really talk about the, um, the real true underlying issues, Definitely. making it always about something else. So I thought that was interesting. For sure.
0: uh, I'm curious if you have any other thoughts around just your experiences traveling or doing business internationally. Yeah, I mean,
2: like I said, I could never pass as an American. Unless, of course, like once I talk and once I like, you know, I'm, I'm in a business setting, it's a little bit different. But from the very beginning and the get go, they're just like, oh, like, you know, like who is this person? And right away, of course, they've already kind of determined who I am. I lived in Istanbul actually for five years. Oh,
3: wow. Cool. Um,
2: but yeah, like my experience there, because there were a lot of Syrian refugees and I'm actually like you know, my parents are Syrian, they immigrated from Syria, you know, it, that's what I would pass as uh, always, you know, mm. and there's a lot of racism against, of course, the refugees, like in many countries, any refugees coming from other countries are always, um, right. unfortunately, even though again, like they're all like, you know, many of them are Muslim and, and, but that doesn't necessarily matter, you know, right away. Like there's a, there's even huge campaigns. And of course, like when, uh, especially when there's elections and whatnot, some um politicians, their whole platform is against the refugees, very similar oh. to here in the US, where platforms are just against, you know, Mexican Americans and the refugees coming and oh. immigrants coming in. So so it's it's a very interesting dynamic to see that across. It's it's also right now, like with FIFA World Cup, I think we can see a lot of the racism mm-hmm. <laughs> that sometimes comes out from like, you know, some of the other countries and you know like how their players are perceived. Like a lot of European players say, especially if they're from another country, like in their immigrants, essentially to whether it's France or Germany or whatnot, they always say that if we win, we're suddenly like German or French or whatever. But right. if we lose, we're like from wherever, whichever country we're from. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of just t- that perception, it, it it is very global, like in, in the way that unfortunately there's a lot of colorism and racism across the the yes. United States. And I think um, also, I don't know if you had this experience in the Middle East, but the Middle East is very racist mm-hmm. as well. Um, I know that there's a lot of, you know, just uh, black uh, Muslim Americans that complain about the racism that they are, are faced with within like, you know, like the Arab Muslim communities in America, or even of course, like internationally.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that, that thing you know that the who gets marginalized in any given scenario is always interesting to figure out who the marginalized people are so you go to you go into a society and you look around you like so who the who are the who's being marginalized and why are they being marginalized in this particular in this particular society you know you when i was in istanbul turkey you have the conservative versus the the secular right and so and in istanbul it felt like the conservative Population was being marginalized, pushing back up against the secular population, and now that's been a movement that's kind of flipped in the other way around, um, in that in that culture and and colorism uh, throughout the Middle East was was a, was a you know because I worked in healthcare and so you know we have OTC products and so and and basically the whitening products is such a huge huge product portfolio in Middle East, Pakistan, India. China, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, basically, you know, these products that promise to lighten your skin as a, as a brand promise and that being fully capitalized on, you know, just think about like the teeth whitening explosion in America and multiply that by like 70 different product categories across, you know, the rest of the world around this whitening product explosion. So you have all these dynamics and people trying to, by privilege, trying to buy whatever way they can do to bring up, pull themselves up a little bit of a rung of the ladder, so they can can change the perception about themselves, so they have a better chance of fitting in. This is what's happening around the world. This is this is what the toxic privilege is causing um, around the world, and you can find it in every single you know every single population when you go into the, to the country. You know, economic marginalization, racial marginalization, caste-based marginalization ethnic marginalization, you know, refugee marginalization. It's happening. Some degree of marginalization is happening everywhere in the world.
0: I remember when I was in Southeast Asia, just, I I think I was in Cambodia, and I walked, was going for a little walk on the river, and there was this group of, these girls must have been I don't know 12 maybe 14 and they were just sitting around in a circle putting like this whitening cream on their faces and it would just made me so sad but yeah i remember seeing that um we see all this marginalization happening to different groups in different contexts what is the role for business leaders Mm -hmm. in this this issue
3: in my perspective the reason why i focus so much on businesses is that at the end of the day because the purpose of business is the production of whatever goods and services uh, it's the one place where people can come together and drop that you should be able to drop that other stuff at the door and come together to do this other thing and because of that and if we've seen it happen throughout history so because of that i think business leaders have the greatest opportunity to actually begin to heal some of these some of this trauma and progress societies in a proper direction which is why i aim a lot of my attention at the business leadership community because it's different than religious leadership different than political leadership different than you know uh because in these in the sphere of business leadership although you might be you know promoted into a position leadership is something that's earned not given so you can have authority by your title but in order for you to be a leader, you have to earn that through trust, and, and to gain the trust of different groups of people, is the is the skill set of the modern leader. You, how do I? And and what, one of the things I talk about is that, you know, we're we're living it's just in America. Just pick American market. We have the most diverse workforce in history, right now, identities, generations, ethnicities abilities, you know, races, all this, all this diversity is happening, but the top of the house looks like it looked like 30 years ago. And so, you know, as this shift happens, the practice of leadership is going to have to rapidly evolve because we're not used to dealing with people who don't look like us when it comes to leadership. And and. You know, if you t- In my second book, The Servant Leaders Manifesto, I talk about kind of the leadership 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, this transition of the demographic of who's being led. And to lead people you've never led before, you have to tap into things you've never done before, which is why JEDI or DE&I is so crucial. It is the way. It is the only way you're going to be able to lead this diverse generation of, of employees. So is getting more and more diverse as by the day. And so it is is—it is literally the answer to the problem. If you look at global employee engagement, it's 21% according to Gallup, 21%. That means 79% of people who work are dis, actually disengaged or disengaged with work. That is, a, that is an indictment of leadership. And so something has to give and something has to change. And so, yeah, it is important for business leaders to lean into this, lean, lean heavy into this space and pick up new tools and learn how to do this correctly. But unfortunately, this is being seen as the latest CSR or seen as performative or it's seen as, okay, we just want to get through this window and move on to the next thing. There is no moving on to the next thing. This is the next thing. And it's going to be the next thing for a, a long time. Unfortunately, what's happening in the space is that, you know, practitioners have allowed our work to be watered down by what's being requested by our clients. And we're not doing the work that actually is the most meaningful because of the land grab available in the training, in the speaking, in the, you know, these spaces. It's so it's so much money there that we're not really, you know, we're going to get all that. And then basically by the time we come back to do the real work, everybody's turned off. Nobody wants to be trained anymore. Nobody wants to be talked at anymore and you, you've lost your agency to do the work that the burning platform of 2020 gave us. That platform is basically, the fire's almost out. And so what are we gonna do when we no longer have a burning platform for change? How are we gonna do this work without that you know, inertia, that initial kick of inertia that we had in 2020? That's what I'm focusing on now.
1: We clearly had a lot more to say on this topic. So please join us for part two of this episode, where we continue the conversation about unlearning racial inequity at work.
0: Thank you for listening to Deeper Than Color. This show is co-sponsored by Invesp and Apiary Digital. Invesp is a leading conversion rate optimization platform. Apiary Digital is a full-service growth marketing collective headquartered in the cloud. We believe that humans are greater than business and that inclusive marketing is one and the same as succeeding in our clients' customer acquisition goals.